Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pray before we read Scripture. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold beautiful things out of your law. In Jesus' name. We're reading from verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. My question to you this morning is, what do you think you're doing at church this morning? What do you think you're doing at church this morning? Now, you may have various reasons for being here. Your parents were coming and they brought you, so you had no option. Uh, You would have liked to have perhaps taken the morning off, but your spouse wanted to come to church and they made you come. Maybe you've come out of habit. That's not a bad thing. The Bible actually says we're to cultivate the habit of meeting together and not the habit of not meeting together. I'm not asking why you came. I'm asking if you know what you're doing here. That really is what this passage of Scripture has been about, you see. It's been about approaching God. That would have been the right answer, by the way. You're here to approach God. But what does that mean? We know what it meant for the children of Israel. They'd been taken out of Egypt. They had been marched out into the wilderness, away from everything, every distraction. Apparently, there's nothing to do in the middle of a desert. There's nothing to do. There are no attractions, no distractions. There they are out there, and they're all together as a people, for the very first time, separated from, from Egypt, but also from all of the other nations that were on the verge, on the edges of the desert. And there, when they were all alone as God's people, on the base of Mount Sinai, they met with God. Now, that's the story of the first part of this paragraph. And the first part of the paragraph sets us up by way of contrast as well as comparison. Here we all are as a congregation, and on the Lord's Day, we're all together. But this time, we're not all together around Mount Sinai. We're all together around Mount Zion. You can see that he's talking to people who are alive and well and able to hear him. He says to them, you have not come. But then he goes on to say positively, You have come to Mount Zion. Here on earth, that's what we've come to church to do, to gather 
round the base, as it were, of the gateway to heaven, the presence of God, we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You know, one of the best quoted Psalms in the Bible is Psalm 110. And in that Psalm, the Lord says to the Lord, that is, the Lord God says to the Lord Christ, the Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter, that is, your power to rule and reign, from Zion. Now, in that Psalm, the, the Zion that's referred to is not the Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in Israel, where the temple and the city of David are. Not Mount Zion in that natural sense as the seat of the earthly Israel. This Zion is the heavenly, latter-day rule of God's Christ. In the book of Revelation, John reports this, Then I looked... And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him those who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Who are those people? They are those who have been redeemed from the earth, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They are the firstfruits for God and the Lamb. That's what he sees in his vision. He sees the heavenly Jerusalem. He sees that we are all there, the full company of the redeemed. In the book of Revelation, it's 144,000. That, that isn't the sum total of the elect. But it's a definite number, and it's a big number, and it's a number that reflects both the covenants, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and it's a number that designates the total sum of God's elect, and they are all there, gathered around the Lamb. And as we're going to see, that is precisely the picture that, that the author to the Hebrews paints for us here. This is Zion, the city of the living God, the one towards which the patriarchs journeyed. They were looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Later on in Revelation, John sees the city of God. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, Christ speaks of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God as the bride of Christ. In other words, you have come this morning to the church, not, not to this building, but to the church, Catholic, the church universal, the church which is everywhere in space and time and history. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. Now, you need to use a bit of your imagination here. When we gathered together this morning, we stepped out of this time into an eternal moment, a timelessly eternal moment, in which we are gathering, at this very moment, we are gathering, not only with all the people of God who gathered before us in Australia yesterday, and who are going to gather in California when they get up out of their beds, in nice weather, presumably, uh, we are gathering with all the people of God since Adam to the end of history. Because when we gather before God, 
our place in space and in time vanishes because when we come into the presence of God, it is a timelessly eternal moment to God in which all of his people are gathered together before him. Now, this is going to be spelled out for us in in the passage that we have read today. As we gather here in this place and this time, we are gathering with the church of every place and all time in the timelessly eternal presence of God. Now, let's see how this unpacks. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to God, to the city of the living God, because He's the God of the living. He's the living God for whom everything in His presence lives. Now, let's see what that looks like. He goes on to unpack this. We have come to innumerable angels, he says, in joyful assembly or in festal gathering, as we might translate it. Now, the word translated innumerable here refers to an indefinite and infinite number. And here they are, they're gathered. They're gathered in the presence of God. They're gathered as part of this gathering, this assembly that we are having today. We have, we, we have company. We not only got the company of all believers, as we'll see, we've got the company of the, of the angels. And this language of a, these angels are having an eternal festive gathering in heaven. We might say in our crass way, they're having a party or a party. They're certainly having a good time. They're having a time of festive joy in the presence of God. It is a joyful assembly. It's a festival assembly in the presence of God. You see the total contrast, do you, between the terror that we read about at Mount Sinai and the festal joy in the presence of God that we see around Mount Zion. Now that the eternal Son has left the tomb, now that he has taken his resurrected and glorified humanity into heaven, the angels are overwhelmed with delight in him. There's this great picture in Revelation where John, John describes the, the heavenly scene and he uses his usual picture language, which we'll come to someday when we're doing Revelation. And, and he, he sees the, 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 the Lamb, the Lamb of God representing Christ as he's just come from Calvary, as if he's just been slain. And here he comes, as it were, from Calvary and he comes into the holy city. And the angels are the first to welcome him. The angels are the first to praise him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This infinite number of invisible and spiritual creatures are occupied with the theme of God's salvation of the elect. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, describes this great throng of angels. He says, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. They did not have, by the way, words for billions 
or trillions in those days. This was as big a number as they could imagine. So as big a number as you can imagine and beyond a bigger number than you can imagine. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is an indefinite, infinite, innumerable number of angels that surround the throne of God in heaven. Now, angels are spirit beings. And yet we have access to these spiritual beings because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to engage by faith with these innumerable angels. We don't pray to them, nor do we praise them, but we join them in praise. We have their company. They are our companions and our confederates in the business of living the Christian life here below. We are part of those heavenly places in Christ already. We belong there. So what you have to do when you come to church is you have to engage your faith and then engage your mind. And you have to see what the picture that God paints of what it means to come in the Lord's day all together as God's people in order to worship him. Now, let me put it it like this. In the Bible, that is the major event of the Christian's life. In the Bible, the major holy day for the Christian is the Lord's day. Now, we can enjoy our small groups, and we should. For fellowship and Bible study, they're great. Don't, don't, I'm not minimizing them in any way but what I'm, in what I'm going to, about to say. But the major provision for your Christian life and health and growth and blessing is the Lord's Day when we're all together with the Lord's people. And not just these people, but these people with the angels in joyful assembly in the presence of God. These angels worship the same Lord Jesus. They they call themselves fellow servants with us of the Lord Jesus. They have the same orders we have. Let all the angels worship God, we read in chapter 1 of Hebrews. These exalted creatures, as I've said, are our companions. They're with us the whole of our journey. They're with us every time we worship. They're with us along the way to protect and care for us. These mighty ones, as they're called, hear the voice of God and they do it. They are ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who will obtain salvation. We should remember that when we come to worship, that we are worshiping alongside our companions, the mighty angels of God, the archangels and the angels, the powers and the dominions, the thrones and authorities that God has established in the heavenly places. But then secondly, we come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The word that's used here denotes any great general assembly of all sorts and all persons belonging to a great city. The word church is a word borrowed from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy three times, Israel's gathering at Mount Sinai is referred to as the day of the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. 
and Israel is called the firstborn. Well, both of these words, this churchly language, is transferred to the people of God in this age, in the new covenant. Jesus uses this word, ecclesia, of the members of his kingdom. The apostles describe the company of believers in a particular place, as well as all around the world, as the church, the ecclesia, the the assembly of God's people. Here, it represents the whole church in space and time and eternity. The church Catholic, universal, everywhere, at all times. This is the church gathered to God. And here the church is drawn from every point of time and every race of humanity. When you and I come into this building, this building disappears in terms of the experience of worshiping God. And we are, because it's crowded out, the roof is taken off, and we are joining with all the saints from the beginning of time till the end of time, all across the world. We are part of the universal, the Catholic Church of God that has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're watching how small a church you belong to. The numbers have an absolute irrelevance. When you come to worship, you're worshiping with 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You are worshiping with the billions and trillions of those who have been brought to Christ or will be brought to Christ throughout all of time. At that moment, they are before the timelessly eternal God. All together. All together, your children and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-great-grandchildren are with you at this moment of time. Your ancestors, right the way back to Adam and Eve in the beginning, are with us at this moment of time in the timelessly eternal presence of God. Isn't that incredible? I find that incredible. It's a universal church. This is the church of those reconciled to God and to one another in Christ. This is the mystery of Christ, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And you can see this. This is the church that is enrolled in heaven. That is, their names are in the Lamb's book of life. This is the entire company of God's elect, chosen from before the foundation of the world. This is the church of the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the firstborn, eternally born, eternally begotten by the Father. And you and I, according to our, proper to our nature as humans and creatures, you and I share with Christ in that designation, because we are united to Christ. So is Christ the firstborn? We share in that privilege, in that position. Not only are we all sons of God, technically, we are all the firstborn sons of God, because we share all the advantages of the firstborn, all the privileges of the firstborn. We inherit the estate Ours is the inheritance. Glorious is the inheritance of the saints in light. We are co-heirs 
with Christ. Now, of course, particular churches may err, may fall into sin. But this church, this Catholic church that we confess in our creeds, is diffused throughout the whole world, throughout all time, and consists only of God's elect people. We've come to the church. And in the center of the vision, there is God. Notice, he is God of all, or he is the judge who is God of all. Among other things, this means that he is the one and only God. He is God of all by creation and by conservation. He sustains our life and our breath and our very existence. Who is this God? Is this the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? It says he's the judge. Well, we know the Father is the judge. We know the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who has given the work of judging. He, he, when he comes, he's, he's going to, 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 to convict the world of judgment, among other things. I think here we have to see the Trinity. This is the Trinity here. Father, Son, and Spirit are comprehended. This is God in an absolute sense. God of all. And I want you to notice what this text is telling us. We have come to God. So the word judge here is not a word that should scare you or terrify you or frighten you. This is the God who not only judges the wicked, but he justifies those who believe in Jesus. We, we come to him as those who have been justified. We have access. The writer says to us, you have come. You have come to the judge who is the God of all. Not with fear and trembling. Indeed, repeatedly in this letter, he's told us we come boldly to the throne of grace. We come with confidence to God because Christ has done all of the work that has opened up the door for us to come with confidence to God. So why does he use the word judge here? Well, I think he uses it in this particular regard. God will judge the cause of the church versus the world. God will judge the cause of the church versus the world. Now, you can see how this works. Here as we gather this, this morning, increasingly the governments, governments of nations that have benefited for centuries from Christian influence are unwilling to speak up for or advocate for the persecuted church in the world. I mean, we have one lady who was released from prison in a, in a Middle Eastern country, and nobody is giving her asylum. Nobody in Europe or in North America are giving her asylum. Nobody is advocating for her. The world is not going to advocate for persecuted Christians ever. It once did when Christian influence was strong, but it's not going to do it going forward. Let's get used to that idea. The world is not a friend of God's. Increasingly in our Western societies, there's been a rise in anti-Christian rhetoric and sentiment. Worldwide, the largest religious body globally is also the most persecuted globally. 
In the book of Revelation, we're told why this isn't a surprise. There the writer tells us in chapter 14 of of, uh, a woman about to give birth, a woman representing the church, the bride of God, the the wife of of the God of Israel, the bride of the Lamb, is about to give birth. And uh, the one who's going to be born is the son. He's the savior. He's, he's the Messiah. And Satan is standing there ready to pounce and to destroy, to destroy this child. And God intervenes and saves the child. And so Satan, full of anger, Satan, who is the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, is thrown down. And he makes war on the followers of the son. Actually, listen to this. This is what it says in Revelation 12. He proceeds to make war, quote, on those who, one, keep the commandments of God, and two, hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, you pull those out for a moment. Think about those two things. What does the world increasingly hate the church for in our country today, when we hold to the commandments of God. When we hold to the commandments of God, we have a way of looking at the world, don't we? We have a way of looking at what marriage is, of the value of human life, of the nature of gender. We, have, we should have a way of looking at people in public life and perhaps not affirming their bad behavior, but critiquing their bad behavior, whoever they are, and from whatever walk of life they come. If we hold to the commandments of Jesus, the world will increasingly hate the church for doing that. And then the other issue that is current in our society today is that we hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is, we say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That Jesus is the only way to God. You can only be reconciled to God by going to God through Jesus. Which excludes what? It excludes everybody else. Every other religious category that you can imagine. It is exclusive, isn't it? The world hates that. The book of Revelation foresaw that. Those are the two things that will get up the world's nose and the world will attack us for them. But then in that, in that chapter in Revelation, God intervenes on behalf of his saints and his prophets. He rescues them, and they praise the Holy One who is and who was, whose judgments are true and just. This was always the longing of God's people in the Old Testament as well, in Micah, where the, the people say, plead, plead my cause and execute judgment for me. Sometimes we want to say that, don't we, as a church? In the book of Revelation, the prayers of the saints come up and are, are, as a sweet savor to God in heaven. And the prayers of the saints are, are saying to God, when will you, when will you act to, to, to bring us out of this, this torture that we're going through, this tribulation that we're going through? Will you not act for us, O God? Will you not execute judgment on your enemies so that your church is protected. God will act because he is the judge. He will act at the end of the day for his church over against the world. And he will act to reward his people. 
on the last day. When Paul talks about rewards in 2 Timothy 4, he says this, laid up for me is a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. We have come to God. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. In a previous episode, I mean in a previous sermon, uh, we distinguished, I just was out to see if you're awake, and we distinguished between the church militant and the church triumphant. Do you remember that, those two expressions? The church militant is the church on earth. The members are still on earth, still alive at any moment, at this moment of time. The church triumphant are the members who from the beginning of time till the end of time have been, have died and have gone to heaven before Christ returns. They are now in the heavenly city. That's what we're being told here. Those who are righteous, that is those who have been justified by faith in the work of Christ for them. Going right back from to the beginning of creation to the end of time, those who have been justified by faith are made right with God. They're righteous. They're spirits. That is, they are disembodied spirits. You remember when Jesus died? He died when he released or dismissed his spirit. Which means that through Holy Saturday, the spirit of Jesus, his human spirit, and his mortal body were separated. It's in the spirit that he descended into, the, into hell, into the abode of the dead, which had a place of punishment and a, and a place of paradise in Jewish thought. It is there that he announces his victory. It is there that he leads from paradise believers from the old covenant and takes them to heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then on the third day, his spirit and his resurrected body are reunited. Well, this is what happens to us. When we die, our spirits are released, and they go immediately to God. That's what this is teaching us. The spirits of righteous people made perfect. One scholar puts it like this. The use of the word spirits here simply reminds us That the way they, here are our departed dead, brothers and sisters, if you've lost people, you need to listen carefully. They now live as God lives. God is what? Spirit. They now live as God lives. Not in their former mortal bodies, but in the dimension of spirit. These share in God's eternal life. They are made perfect. They have proved that Christ is, in fact, the pioneer of our faith. And even though they wait for the resurrection of the body, they have reached the goal of their journey. They are with Christ, which is by far the best. They have finished their course. They have entered into the joy of their Lord. They have gained the state of divine blessedness. That is, they are in that happy space that God lives in as the Holy Trinity. 
which is called beatitude, a place of blessedness, of perfect happiness and joy, the happiness of God, not our kind of happiness, but the happiness of God that is undisturbed by anything exterior to him and that never alters, never change. These people, the spirits of just people made perfect, have entered into the perfection of that blessedness of God, the happiness of God. They're in God's happy space. And they're enjoying God forever. And they're seeing God. They have been given the ability as spirits to see the beatific vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and splendor. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. As you worship in this room today, you're worshiping with those that have gone before us. They're all together. We're all in the same worship service in that timelessly eternal moment in the presence of God. And he's left the best to last. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The city of God is filled with angels and saints, but at the center is God. At the beginning is God. He's the living God who defines everything else about this heavenly Jerusalem. Everything lives in the presence of God. Everything and everyone lives in the presence of God. God is the God of the living, Jesus said, not the dead. Our dead live. But Jesus is the one through whom we come. His name, the name that the the author uses here, Jesus, denotes his human nature. You shall call his name Jesus. But also his divine mission. What does the name Jesus mean? It means the Lord our Savior, Yahweh our Savior. He shall save his people from their sins. He is the one who will be called, the angel says to Joseph, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the mediator of a covenant that is both new in this book and better in this book. It's not temporary, it's permanent. It's not temporal. It is eternal and immutable. That is unchanging. And Jesus is the one who who touches both sides. He is the perfect Savior who merits for us and imparts to us full salvation. He is the man in the middle. He bears our nature. He bears God's nature And he offers his humanity as a sacrifice for us. And he brings us to God. You see that? The basis of his work as mediator is put in these words. The the blood of sprinkling. That talks about the sacrificial system. As the innocent dies in place of the guilty. And the blood is then sprinkled to kind of be a pictorial sign that the effect of the death of the innocent victim, the sacrifice, results in or effects the pardon, the healing, the restoration, and the forgiveness 
of the people. The blood of sprinkling says to you, your sins have been atoned for. Your sins have been pardoned. This is in contrast to Abel. Abel is the first martyr in Scripture, slain by his brother Cain. The blood of Abel, so the Bible says, cries out for justice for all martyrs throughout all of time. It's a symbol of the final victory and vindication of God's people that is yet to come. Abel's blood calls out for that final vindication, justice. But Jesus' blood cries out salvation, accomplished and applied, full salvation. He has done all that it takes. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. His blood is timelessly, eternally efficient and effective in securing and maintaining us in a state of blessedness with God. So the author has pointed to two ways of worship. One in which the result really is condemnation because it's all about the law. The second in which the result is blessedness because it's all about the gospel. John Owen puts it like this, the gospel brings us into the glory, beauty, and order of the invisible world, of the new creation, of the spiritual Catholic Church, the church in which Christ is the gate, Christ is the capstone, and safety, joy, lies in him for all of his people. Here on earth, we on earth have union with God, the three-in-one, and mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Do you know what you are doing coming to church today? Something far bigger, something far bigger than Notre Dame Cathedral or St. Peter's in Rome or any mega church auditorium, something far bigger than the whole world. We were coming to God, to the church of the firstborn, to the spirits of just people made perfect, to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please draw near to us. May your word find a lodging place in our heart. Will you fire our imaginations, even as we come towards the close of this worship time, to go out and to serve our neighbors and love our neighbors in your name. We pray that you would keep the fragrance of this moment fresh and new and real to us, we ask in your name. Amen.